0: Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, the podcast about Lyme disease. My name is Angela Knight. I'm a journalist. And today I'm speaking to Jenna Lush Thayer, a former senior advisor to the US government and United Nations. She's a veteran of bureaucratic politics. Her expertise includes transparency, accountability, and human rights. In 2015, she developed an innovative strategy to revise the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases codes for Lyme disease, which doctors around the world refer to for diagnosing and treating the symptoms of Lyme. It was a race against time, as there were only 86 days left in the World Health Organization's open process to change the codes. She quickly formed an ad hoc committee and they implemented this strategy to link human rights violations and corruption, as well as medical research to the Lyme ICD codes. In 2018, thanks to Jenna and her dream team, the ICD-11 codes for Lyme were revised by the World Health Organization, debunking the medical theory that Lyme is easy to diagnose, treat and cure. Her book, Slime, details her research into the global fraud, corruption, and human rights violations surrounding the Lyme disease epidemic. I spoke to Jenna from her home in Florida and asked her when she first became ill with Lyme disease. When I was 16 years old,
1: I was uh, an athlete and just starting my career in ballet. A very fit young lady. I developed a Bell's palsy and severe fatigue and severe body pain and I could barely move very arthritic my joints were swollen and I was told at the time that this was due to my exercise routine and that I had to stop exercising so much <laughs> even though to my right and to my left everybody else was exercising just as much You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I was basically in bed for almost more than three months. I could barely get out of bed. And then um, I guess partly youth and luck in my immune system was quite robust. It knocked back the infection and I came out of it. And, you know, had a relatively good health into my 30s, but I still would have periods of time, even in my 20s, you know, where I would just kind of crash and I would have a severe light sensitivity, but, you know, it was manageable. And then in my 30s, I think partly because of my, I had a very grueling oh, job. Where I was traveling 70% of the time to 40 different countries. So I was always in significant jet lag and working very, very hard, my health started to deteriorate and I would just crash for longer and longer. And I started to develop a lot of neurological complications, hicks and tremors, falling off my feet, very bad blurry vision, loss of words, confusion. I was told it was probably just my travel schedule. I started having um, a lot of endocrine disruption, You know, severe fatigue, lots of pain, gastric problems. I just couldn't get out of bed. Even if I wanted to, there's just no way I could. Basically, if I wasn't working, I was just sleeping and I had a cot set up in my office so that I could take naps at different times during the day. And I was basically thought I was compensating for the jet lag. So I, I kind of did that on and off until I really couldn't. And um, the doctors started telling me I probably had lupus and or multiple sclerosis. Both of these are clinical diagnoses because at least at the time, they don't have precise tests. They do a series of tests and they look at your symptoms and then they give you a diagnosis and uh, one of my undergraduate degrees is in science, and so I always read everything and was being told I possibly had, and I I disagreed with their diagnosis, and I was unwilling to go on these very powerful immunosuppressive biologics that they wanted to give me. So I didn't know what I had, but I thought maybe I had some kind of infection. So anyway, I got sicker and sicker, um, and it took me down further and further to the point where I really couldn't work full-time at all, and then I was finally diagnosed at uh, age 52.
0: How did you finally get diagnosed with Lyme? That's a good question. So I have known
1: about Lyme disease since the early 1980s. But I, like so many people who who had yet to be medically marginalized, I didn't even know I was being medically marginalized. I often use the CDC website for information. And I remember even thinking, could I have Lyme disease? But I looked at the website and it said you need bullseye rash and that it's this and that, because I, I knew I had that was palsy, you know. And so I didn't put the profile that the CDC gave to the public for what Lyme disease is. But then a friend of mine who I've known since literally before she was born, I've known her when she, when she was still in her mommy's tummy, you know. Anyway, um, she almost died from Lyme disease. And she started giving me all these details, and, and then I was telling her about what was going on with me, and she suggested I get tested. And she told me, don't even bother with the standard tests. They're useless. Send your blood work to Igenix because their tests are more sensitive. And so that's how I got my diagnosis. Uh, subsequently, after getting a positive test result from Igenix, uh, particularly with the uh, PCR test is what I got. Um, positive you know I've never tested positive on a standard test for Lyme disease ever neither has my husband and he tested positive on all bands most bands so with Igenix as well as PCR so basically I would say my friend who almost died from Lyme saved my life
0: what prompted you to start investigating Lyme disease
1: you know I finally got my diagnosis when I, uh, I was 52 And I had been suffering with, you know, all of these ailments uh, for a long time. And I was just so perplexed. I was like, why is it that it took so long for me to get a diagnosis? What is going on here? So I started reading everything I could about this. You know, my my professional background is working on human rights, working on government transparency and accountability, which is a polite way of saying anti-corruption. And, uh, you know, I've worked across all kinds of governance sectors to help provide basic services to marginalized populations. And I looked at this situation and I said, my goodness, I said, this is a situation of extreme corruption and human rights abuse. I need to do something about this. So I got involved in researching it for my own personal reasons because I couldn't understand why I hadn't gotten a diagnosis for decades. And then I couldn't understand why I wasn't being able to get a treatment. I could not get anybody to treat me, you know. And then um, I, I did find some people who were willing to treat me, but it was all out of pocket. And it was extremely expensive. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I thought, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I don't want to go broke, you know, getting treatment, particularly because I was unable to work at that time. Just the whole thing just seemed so unjust and unfair and ridiculous. I I just figured uh, maybe I could do something about it because of my background.
0: Disulfiram is usually used as a medication for alcohol abuse, but Lyme patients have found it an effective treatment. Jenna says it helped her. Disulfiram,
1: in the course of my my illness with Lyme disease, um, (laughs) when I was in my 40s, I met my husband and we then got married. And he is from Old Lyme, Connecticut. And shortly after our marriage of both of us, our health started to really deteriorate. (laughs) And eventually, we were both diagnosed with Lyme disease. I got diagnosed first, and then I asked him to go get checked out, and he had it as well. So we were both in our 50s when we got diagnosed, and I responded very well to a combination of antibiotics and herbal medicines and went into remission but he did not, he just got sicker and sicker and sicker. Uh, So even though he wasn't as ill as I was initially, over time he became more and more debilitated. And um, I heard about, from Dr. Ken Leidner, that he had had some great success with trialing by and so Steve and I, my husband and I, were among the early first patients to go on this treatment under Dr. James Novak. All I can say is it it completely changed his life. He went from very debilitated and disabled in certain ways to kayaking and hiking, walking on the beach, riding a bicycle, normal life. I mean, he's back now, you know, he gets up in the morning at a normal time. He can work a full day. He can go out about and have activities outside of working, you know, like a normal person he was extremely debilitated. For me, I, it was like, it basically kind of miraculous to watch how well this drug worked for him. And he did a high dose over a long period of time, 11 weeks. At, uh, he got up to 500 milligrams a day and he's a big guy. So that worked for him. Now myself, I also took the drug. I was a lot more sensitive to it. I could never get up to the higher dosage. I was really not able to tolerate a much higher dose. I had severe herpsing, um, which he he had some herxing, but I had severe herxing, which to mm-hmm. me just indicates you know that I clearly had a lot of latent subclinical infection, the fits, spasms, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, which I had when I had Lyme disease, by the way. That's not new. I came out much better too. I mean, my energy, much less pain. I have much more even energy. Um, I don't have the lingering symptoms that would come and go with my vision and tingling and you know peripheral things, those have resolved. So I'm very happy that uh, I was able to take that treatment. I don't regret having the herpsing symptoms that I did because the outcome was very good.
0: Uh, Jenna, can you explain what the ICD codes are and why they hadn't changed for so many years? The ICD codes are measurement tools
1: that were designed by the World Health Organization and their many member states many decades ago. And they are used to identify and classify diseases and the causes of illness and death globally. So many people, when they go to the doctors, they think that the doctors are scribbling down certain codes and stuff. And it has something to do with maybe the health system that where they live or their insurance reimbursements or whatever. But in fact, these are globally utilized codes that are universal and have been developed by the World Health Organization. And it's over 190 member states. And most of the countries in the world participate in this process. So the ICD codes are very essential in terms of tracking pandemics, epidemics, disease outbreaks, and looking at how disease and illness is managed on a country-to-country basis, on a regional basis, and globally. For example, the Ebola outbreak in 2014 to 2016 was a threat to go to a pandemic from West Africa. It was spreading slowly into Europe and the United States, just some cases. However, there was no ICD code for Ebola. At that time, Ebola had no specific code. It was just under the general heading of hemorrhagic fevers. So the World Health Organization held an emergency meeting and gave Ebola a primary code, so that anywhere in the world where Ebola might be an outbreak, then people could use that code. The World Health Organization would be notified. All the other nations would be notified because they're using the same codes that there's an outbreak of Ebola here and here, and here, and so the disease could be hopefully identified and mitigated. Now, why did it take till 2016 for this to occur? Ebola was discovered in the 70s. Well, because the ICD codes are a very political process. They're not simply a medical process, and there are many, many diseases that are under-articulated. In other words, they are not articulated in terms of their full capacity to cause disease and death and or they have no code for certain aspects of them, uh, for example, congenital Lyme, or they're under generic codes. So if Ebola, I think, was occurring in wealthy Western countries, it would have been given a designated an ICD code immediately in the 70s because it was happening in outbreaks in very impoverished African nations. It just had it under the generic umbrella of hemorrhagic fevers. There was a big political process involved
0: Why are the ICD codes important for Lyme patients? So what's happened is Lyme disease has
1: had the same basic codes for over 25 years. And these codes only recognize the early acute form of the disease. And why is this the case? Because the only people involved in that process were the same people who basically designed and defined Lyme in a very narrow case definition, as early and acute, easily treated, easily cured, easily diagnosed. So these same kind of bad actors were involved in influencing the ICD codes. In 2012, the World Health Organization had a, a lot of criticism for its lack of transparency and they made institutional reforms to open up their processes so that they could meet their new requirements for transparency and one of them was that they would open up the process whereby ICD codes could be revised and they set up a global platform that anybody really could participate in. So as long as you participated following the rules, you could start to put in information to influence the outcomes of the codes. And in this case, for the first time, for example, if I wanted to change my codes, the code, the ICD codes, the typical process in the United States and in most countries would be that there's a commission at the national level in the UK, maybe, I don't know, but certainly many countries where I would petition that commission and ask them, would you please change the codes for Lyme disease? And then they would decide whether or not they would do it. And then they would go to the World Health Organization and may or may not change the codes. Now, in the United States, it's a completely non-transparent process. You can put in a petition, they have no requirement to respond to you or tell you whether or not they're gonna take any action. That was the system before. With this open system that the World Health Organization set up, we could circumvent this entirely and go right into the global platform and put all the documentation on record for anybody in the world to see. So this is why the codes finally changed was because the ad hoc committee was able to circumvent this closed non-transparent process that's happening at national levels and had been happening previously at the World Health Organization to change the codes and make them more reflective of uh, the chronic multi-system possible fatalities from Lyme disease. So
0: in your book, what evidence of corruption did you find to explain why people have been denied diagnosis and treatment for so long? There
1: is so much evidence. (laughs) It's just so many, so much evidence. In the United States in the 1980s, we passed a law called the Bay Dole Act, and it was intended to help support innovation and technology and science and it really had unforeseen consequences. Basically, it allows government officials who are in office fulfilling their function as government officials to hold patents on technologies and science. And what happens is this means that they have a personal stake in what technologies will be promoted and used, what medicines will be promoted and used, so they become very vested. It becomes a personal stake. And not only that, they're sitting on committees whereby they can eradicate their competition. They can say no. For example, the Lyme test is patents are held by some CDC and NIH officials. Now, these tests have been long known to be very inaccurate, very low reliability, you know, with an inaccuracy for up to 50% and up to 60% for women for some reason. You could get a false negative. Why hasn't this changed? Well, this hasn't changed for multiple reasons, but one reason is because it's owned by individuals in the government, and they sit on the same committees and say that these competing tests are not as good as the one that they have. Our Our whole system of medicine is being contorted by these conflicts of interest. And in fact, I spoke to a senior official at the United Nations World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, They basically are the intellectual hub of all patents. This was an unofficial meeting, but he said that the patent corruption in the United States was creating corruption globally. He said it's a huge problem. So one is the corruption around the patents, and then the other corruption is that By downplaying the disease, there are a lot of Lyme patients in the US system, certainly, but also other countries. Instead of being given a cheap generic drug over time to control, manage, and reduce their Lyme infection, antibiotics, they are put on extremely expensive patented biologics. And biologics are the biggest profit making centers for the pharmaceutical industry. They are currently making up over 70% of their profits and the numbers have just been going up, up, up. So when you get on a biologic drug, which is used to basically modify symptoms, it's not a curative drug, it's a symptom-modifying type of drug, and you're on it for the rest of your life. So it's a very, very profitable therapy course to get anybody onto a biologic instead of identifying and treating the actual disease, whether it be Lyme or something else.
0: Europe has followed the US's guidelines devised by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. These guidelines were devised over 50 years ago. How has this violated Lyme patients' human rights?
1: It's very interesting. The CDC, for years, it it was in violation of federal regulations by having their website promote a private medical organisation. That's against federal law. So they've become Smarter about it. They're no longer directly promoting the guidelines for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. What they do is they send you to various hyperlinks. At at one point, it was at the UpToDate site. UpToDate is a global drop down menu that people use to identify and diagnose diseases. And then that links back to the Infectious Disease Society of America. (laughs) But uh, the point is, they're in violation of their own regulations. And they were very, very, very active in orchestrating, with the great help of the IDSA, these institutions, in the case of Lyme disease, are very much intertwined. One You can't see where one ends and the other begins because most of the CDC officials who are responsible for uh, my Lyme disease are IDSA members. So Up and down the line, they're all interconnected. So, they were very active in globally orchestrating the Lyme guidelines across the world. And they reached out to various institutions across the world, public health people, uh, medical societies, to heavily promote their guidelines, which is very interesting because they've never, very rarely have they made any kind of major push for such a minor disease. I mean, if this is supposed to be such a minor, inconsequential disease, why have they spent so much time and effort promoting global guidelines and restrictions on the identification and treatment of it? It really doesn't make any sense no. at all. And not only that, the IDSA has like a set of committees where they have key focus for disease, and you know they have tuberculosis as one of them. Like, you know some major diseases that are challenges, and then they have one for Lyme disease again. Why do they have one for Lyme disease? They have limited committees. I think there's like five. And one of them is designated for Lyme disease. HIV AIDS and Lyme disease. Tuberculosis and Lyme disease. Why Mm. would they have a major committee for an inconsequential illness?
0: In SLIME, you say that the labelling of certain symptoms and the case definition for Lyme is medical fiction. What do you mean by this? There's been a big push
1: to uh, create a fictitious the label called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And I say it's a medical fiction because there's absolutely no proof that there is something called a post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. There's no medical proof of it. There's no scientific proof of it. And yet it's being promoted widely and in fact, the U.S. government's federal tick-borne disease working group has been promoting it globally. It was introduced in 2006, formally, with the IDSA guidelines, and at that time, they said, we don't know what this is, we don't know why people are sick, but we postulate that they have a post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which could be caused by any number of things, except, of course, chronic infection. They pushed for this terminology to be the basis for research, which meant that anybody who wanted to get research money for Lyme disease had to use this terminology if they wanted to explore ongoing symptoms. So it was a way to erase, eradicate, and downplay the concept of any persistent infection by calling it a loosey-goosey post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And in fact, it's simply, it wasn't only the IDSA, John Alcott, who has uh, been doing research on Lyme disease, posted an opinion piece talking again about post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And he is, uh, you know, saying that in order to determine if people really have chronic Lyme, the holy grail is to have a biomarker that can test for it. And of course, he has his own patent on a biomarker. It's very interesting to me that the government has spent hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe now it's even up to a billion dollars, who knows, but many hundreds of millions of dollars on researching it, and yet very little research has gone for treatment and cure. This inconsequential pathogen that causes quote-unquote mild disease.
0: Have you had any opposition to your book or attempts to prevent you publishing it? It was very interesting nobody knew
1: it was coming out. I kept it very quiet. I didn't announce it. I didn't pre-advertise it. I didn't try to go through the regular route for publication. So just like the way in which we changed the medical codes, no announcements, everything was done quietly. Nobody knew we were working on it. It was the same approach I did with slime because in the course of working in this advocacy work, I had seen people trying to run interference on things. And so I don't tend to announce anything. (laughs) Let anybody know what I'm up to until it's done. (laughs) What I did notice was that in the US, the large quote unquote Lyme organizations, nobody responded to the fact that we were able to change the ICT codes. It was completely ignored. Mm -hmm. And I find that so curious because it's such an incredibly important thing to have codes that recognize dementia from Lyme disease, demyelinating conditions from Lyme disease, systemic complication from Lyme disease, which you can then define what they are. It shows multiple uh, codes that focus on the central nervous system issues and we have a code now finally for Lyme carditis which we didn't have and you know these codes are so critically important for anybody going to interact with any medical system across the globe because when we only had Lyme arthritis and you had Lyme carditis your system would not first of all recognize all the Lyme carditis that was occurring and you couldn't get treatment that was covered it's such an incredible and important thing to have codes that can cover all the complications of Lyme disease now You know, we had language put in that they could be specified because this now is tied specifically to reimbursements and coverage. I don't know why there was a lack of recognition that this had been done by an international group of scientists and medical doctors and advocates. I mean, that's the other thing, that the group that I formed, I formed with help of others. It's an incredible group representing Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Northern Europe, Africa, Asia Pacific, Canada, the United States and South America, you know, we, we pulled together this group, we got in there, we changed the codes,
0: you know, for the first time in over 25 years. Jenna says that people and organisations are now having some success in the law courts over Lyme issues.
1: We have many lawsuits going forward globally headed by various individuals and organizations and they're winning their cases against the unreliability of the tests, the denial of treatment, the corruption around the the guidelines that's in play now in the United States. The IDSA has tried to get rid of all of these allegations, knock them out, but the judge has ruled in favour that they go forward because there's substantial evidence that they have taken place to deny treatment and care for a nuisance
0: disease. You advise Lyme patients to take the new ICD-11 Lyme codes to show their doctors and yes. request advocates make use of these codes. Where would people find these copies? The World Health Organization has a website and you can
1: just put in ICD-11 on Google, on your Google bar, and it'll pop up, you know, it'll tell you actually how to get to the ICD-11 codes and then you can go in there and then you can just print the page. But the reason I recommend that patients and advocates use these codes is because these are codes that have been ratified by the World Health Organization. Right now, there are issues with the World Health Organization's handling of COVID-19. Okay, that aside, the point is that this is the global public health institution. And when they recognize something, it represents broad-based recognition, global recognition. (laughs) These codes represent the review of scientists and medical professionals from across the globe in multiple specialty groups saying okay we now acknowledge these things are real so that's why it's so powerful it's not one small medical society saying please pay attention it's not a small group of patient advocates saying I have this problem it's the World Health Organization that has legitimized dementia from Lyme disease demyelinating yeah. conditions from Lyme disease Lyme carditis Lyme neuroborreliosis disseminated ophthalmic issues you know these are all spelled out right now uh, on the world health organization website and that's a very powerful tool it takes everything to a new level it's like oh the World Health Organization this is legitimate so if you're a Lyme patient and you are going in and you're having complications from Lyme disease you can say look here's the World Health Organization the new codes yes they're not adopted yet but it legitimizes my condition today
0: why are the ICD codes so important these ICD
1: codes are so important because they recognize that this disease attacks the central nervous system there's a great emphasis on its uh how it devastates the central nervous system so it redefines the disease away from a minor arthritic ailment we these codes are really important because it identifies uh, two conditions that are potentially fatal dementia and demyelinating conditions so for the first time oh and lyme carditis So now we have three diseases, three disease conditions from this that are potentially fatal, which again redefines the nature of this illness. It's not a minor nuisance illness, it can kill you.
0: So Jenna, what is your next project? I don't really have a next project.
1: For me, I have a certain skill set and I kind of look for opportunities where I can make best use of that. I think that because the ICD codes are still to be formally adopted, you know, they have been legitimized and ratified, but they still have to be entered into the system now. People still have to understand their relevance. I think I'll be, you know, probably still educating people about that. The other thing is um, in terms of follow-up within this effort, the ICD code, the primary code for congenital health was removed was accepted and it was removed. And so there's ongoing effort with members of the ad hoc committee and our colleagues to try to get this reinstated because it's such an important code. The code was removed at the request of the Public Health Agency of Canada in coordination with the CDC published a report on gestational Lyme. And even though The report showed a great deal of proof that there are adverse outcomes and more complications from Lyme disease for women who have Lyme disease and their offspring during pregnancy. Despite all the evidence they cited, they concluded there wasn't any evidence. And what's interesting is that they made that conclusion, but then the CDC said, it's possible this is a problem, and they changed their website. But the problem is the World Health Organization went with one request, to change this, and it was not done in a transparent manner. So, apparently, they had these discussions back in October. Should have put the discussion out on the open platform to be discussed and then come to a decision. But they held it in secret until they announced that they had taken a decision to remove it in December. So, there was no transparency around that, which breaks the wrong rules for transparency in this process. So, there's a lot of issues. Why is it that one health organization from one country? In tandem with another one, basically take a decision that will deny care globally for millions of children.
0: Is there work which still needs to be done?
1: The world needs to recognize that this is a potentially fatal illness, that it can cause many degenerative conditions, that it is deserving of treatment, that Lyme patients um, need to be heard and need to be, and, and, and the medical marginalization needs to stop it's human rights abuse and the other thing I think that needs to happen perhaps is to investigate why there's been such a cover-up about the nature of the disease
0: Jenna thank you so much for talking to Lime Dialogues today it's been great talking to you
1: thank you Angela thank you for the opportunity and I hope that I have been helpful in some way (laughs) thank you so much
0: If you know others who would be interested in Jenna's story, please share this podcast. And if you would like to share your lime story, please contact me via the email limedialogues at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, when my guest will be the journalist James Dellingpole. Until then, take care and goodbye.